Chapter Twenty Seven of Stories of Old Greece and Rome by Emily Kip Baker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Seven The Story of Jason, Part One. In Thessaly there once ruled a wise and good king named Ison, who dwelt happily with his wife Alcimede and his little son Jason. The king's reign did not last long, however, for his wicked brother Peleus collected a band of armed warriors, and made war upon Ison, who, after a feeble resistance, surrendered his throne to the invader, and escaped secretly from the kingdom with his wife and child. The dethroned monarch took refuge in a distant country, and lived in concealment, until Jason was old enough to be sent to some place of greater safety, for they knew that the cruel Peleus would try to seek him out and kill him. So they entrusted the boy to the care of the centaur Chiron, after telling that wise teacher who the lad really was, and begging him to bring Jason up, with the desire some day to avenge their wrongs. Chiron instructed the youth in all the arts of which he himself was master, and when the young prince reached manhood he was one of the bravest and most skilful of the centaur's pupils. Jason had been told many times of his uncle's tyranny, and he burned to avenge the wrongs of his parents, but his wise teacher cautioned him to wait until he had the strength and power enough to face the wicked usurper. When he deemed the youth sufficiently trained to leave his care, Chiron sent Jason forth, bidding him satisfy now his desire for revenge. He advised his pupil, however, to be careful, and to do no harm to anyone except the man who had wronged him. Jason promised to obey his tutor's instructions, and, girding on his sword, set out on the journey to his native city. It was springtime when Jason turned his steps towards his father's kingdom, and the rains had swollen all the streams, making them difficult to ford. One day, as he stood on the bank of a river, wondering where he had best attempt to swim across, he saw an old woman looking despairingly at the rushing, foaming water. Jason spoke gently to her, and offered to carry her across the river. This unexpected assistance was gratefully accepted, and Jason bravely waded into the shallowest part of the stream. The swift current and his unwieldy burden made the crossing very difficult, so that when Jason at last reached the opposite bank he was glad to rest. He did not mind the wetting, but he was sorry to find that he had lost one of his sandals in the river. As it was useless to try to find it, he set off with only the remaining one, but first he stopped to say good-bye to the old woman. To his surprise he no longer saw a bent and trembling figure beside him, but he stood in the presence of a beautiful, imperious woman, whose royal bearing would have proclaimed her a goddess, even if the startled youth had not seen beside her the peacock that ever attends the stately Juno. Jason trembled at this transformation of his aged passenger, but Juno smiled graciously upon him, and bade him have no fear, for she had come to promise him her aid and protection. Before he could render suitable thanks, the goddess had disappeared, and Jason continued his journey, full of courage and confident of success. Soon he came to his native city, where he found a great crowd of people assembled at the temple, for Peleus the king was offering on that day special sacrifices, and a public festival had been proclaimed throughout the city. Jason joined in the crowds that were hurrying to the temple, and stood quite near his uncle, while the king, unconscious of his presence, was performing the sacrifices. When the ceremony was over, Peleus glanced round at the assembled company, and started back pale with terror when he saw Jason, for although he did not recognise his nephew, he had been warned by an oracle to beware of a youth who would appear before him 
wearing only one sandal. Trembling but striving to hide his fear, Peleus spoke to the stranger and asked him his name. Then Jason confronted his uncle boldly, declared his own parentage, and demanded that the usurper should at once resign his throne, and restore old Ison to his rightful place in the kingdom. Peleus did not dare openly to defy this fearless youth, but neither did he intend to give up his power and wealth. So, being a crafty man, he sought to beguile Jason with soft words, and promised to send at once for the absent king and queen. He urged his nephew to remain meanwhile at the court, and invited him to join the royal household that evening in a splendid banquet. Jason needed no persuasion to eat, drink, and be merry, and as the wily Peleus plied him with rich viands and the choicest wine, his heart warmed towards his uncle, and he felt less eager to carry out his long-cherished vengeance. During the feast the bards sang of brave deeds done by heroes, and one old musician told of the famous golden fleece that many had sought to take by stealth, but of those who went on the quest no one ever came back to tell why he had failed. Jason listened eagerly while the old singer told how the famous fleece once belonged to a ram that the friendly Neptune sent to Phrixus and Helle to enable them to escape from the persecutions of their stepmother Eno. This was the same Eno who cared so tenderly for the infant Bacchus, but to her stepchildren she was very cruel. Their own mother, Nephele, had been sent away by King Athamas, because he had wearied of her and wished to marry Eno, and when the banished mother learned how neglected and ill-treated her children were, she begged Neptune to help them. So the sea-god sent a golden-fleeced ram, which Phrixus and Helle mounted, and thus escaped from their cruel stepmother. Only Phrixus reached the land of Colchis, however, for when the ram flew over the sea, Helle grew frightened at the sight of the waves tossing so far beneath her, and suddenly lost her hold on the golden fleece. Her brother reached out to clutch her as she slid from the ram's back, but it was too late, and the unfortunate maiden fell into that part of the sea that is since known as the Hellespont. Phrixus reached Colchis safely, and here he sacrificed the ram to Neptune, and hung its golden fleece on a tree, under which he placed a dragon to guard it night and day. As Jason listened to this story, he felt as though here was a task worth his mettle, and it needed no urging from Peleus to make him declare himself ready to set forth on the adventure without further delay. The wily king praised Jason's courage, and prophesied that he would be called the greatest among heroes, while in his heart he felt assured that the troublesome nephew would never return alive. He promised to render Jason every assistance in his power, and offered to fit him out with a well-manned ship, but the young adventurer had been thinking over the matter more calmly, and had begun to distrust his uncle's apparent kindness. So he went for counsel to the shrine of Jupiter at Dodona where there was an oracle called the Speaking Oak, and on consulting this he learned to his great satisfaction that Juno was still watching over his welfare, and would aid him in the quest of the Golden Fleece. The Speaking Oak then bade him cut off one of its great limbs, and carve from it a figurehead for his ship. It told him also that the ship in which he was to sail should not be made of timber cut from any ordinary trees, but should be built of the wood taken from pine-trees that grew on Mount Pelion. When Jason had carved his figurehead, he found that it had the gift of speech, and could counsel him wisely in all his affairs. So as soon as the ship was ready, the figurehead was fastened to its prow, and Jason set out on his memorable voyage. He called his ship the Argo, and himself and his fellow adventurers the Argonauts. 
Among his companions were many men famous for their brave deeds, Hercules, Admetus, Castor and Pollux, Meliager, Orpheus, and Theseus. All these were eager for new adventures, and no one doubted that with so many heroes to aid him, Jason would succeed in winning the Golden Fleece. Even Peleus, as he watched the voyagers sail away, wished that he had sent the daring youth on a still more perilous journey. The voyage to Colchis was full of strange happenings, both on land and sea. The first disaster that overtook the Argonauts occurred when Hercules went ashore to get some fresh water, with a youth of the party named Hylas. There had been several occasions on which it was necessary for some of the heroes to land in order to get food or water, but the delay had been brief and the voyage quickly resumed. This time they were in need of new oars, so Hercules offered to procure them, and took with him his favourite companion, Hylas. While he himself was felling trees, he sent Hylas in search of fresh water, and the youth, after wandering about for some time, came at last to a fountain whose waters were so pure and cool that he lingered long beside it. The nymphs who lived in the fountain were charmed with the beauty of Hylas, and determined to keep him with them. So when he bent over the water, they drew him gently down into its clear depths. Hercules, after waiting long for the lad's return, went in search of him, but no trace of Hylas could be found anywhere in the lonely forest. Though he called again and again, no voice answered him, for Hylas lay in the green bed of the fountain, and his ears were deaf to the cries of his friend. Hercules' grief was so great over the loss of Hylas, that he refused to accompany the expedition any further, and made his way home alone and on foot. On another occasion Jason landed in Thrace, and here he learned that the blind king Phineas was tormented by some harpies, creatures half women and half bird, that ate or befouled all the food placed before the wretched king. The only meals Phineas could take were by stealth, and the poor king's life was rendered miserable by the constant presence of these foul monsters. When the two sons of Boreas, who were happily gifted with wings, heard Jason relate the story of the harpies to his companions, they promptly offered to help the blind Phineas, and, flying at the loathsome birds with drawn swords, the brothers drove them out of Thrace, into an island so far away that they never came back to trouble the king. End of chapter 27